Thank you, Frank. Well, if we were, I'd say maybe the year 1988 or so, you would have uh, in your closet probably a pair of Reeboks. Well, if you were to move forward to 1998, there was a good chance that those Reeboks had been exchanged for a pair of Nikes, and there's an interesting story behind that. 1988, Reebok really owned the landscape of the domestic athletic shoe market here in this country. If you knew a person that had any pair of athletic shoes, chances are they were a pair of Reeboks. Well, in 1988, Nike decided to uh, combat that. They decided to confront that with a brand new marketing campaign. At that time, Nike only, only had less, really less than 20% of the market for athletic shoes here in this country. And so they launched a campaign, and the simple slogan was three words, just do it. They surrounded themselves with icons, really, in the athletic world. Bo Jackson, Michael Jordan, a lot of others. You remember many of those commercials. To a degree, that campaign still runs even today, almost 25 years later. Well, in just 10 short years, Nike went from basically having 18% of the shoe market to almost 50% of the athletic shoe market here in this country. They would spend $300 million a year overseas, most of it just on that one slogan alone, just do it. Well, for us as Christians, it's that one little three-word slogan that also captures the simplicity of walking with God on a daily basis. Whenever we look at knowing God's will, whenever we look at how God's Word speaks to our lives, whenever we look at what it means to hear from God and then to respond to God, it's that same slogan, just do it, that really captures what our response has to be. And the cool thing is today in Scripture, we're going to see a picture from uh, John chapter 2. You can turn there with me if you will. John chapter 2, we're going to see a picture from that passage of Scripture of what it looks like to both understand and to respond to the will of God as we understand it. And so John chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Now, while you're turning there, let me just remind you of a few things concerning the will of God. God's will for our lives is captured for us in His Word. God wants us to know His will. He doesn't want to keep His will from us. He wants us to know His will and walk in His will. And we're going to look at that here as we move through this message. But also, we have to understand that, that doing God's will in our lives on a daily basis, living a life that is yielded to Christ, is oftentimes very, very costly. It costs us to do God's will. It costs us in a variety of ways to be faithful to walk with God on a daily basis. Doing God's will is something that doesn't come easily. It requires hard work on our part. Doing God's will in our lives on a daily basis sometimes calls to lose certain things. It requires adjustments in our lives. We have to constantly adjust in life if we're going to be able to do God's will on a continual basis. Yet we find that on the back end of doing God's will, we find that doing His will and walking with Him in obedience is always, uh, always results in a life that's rewarded by God. You may say, Brooks, I don't know. You know, I've, I've done God's will in my life, and it's cost me in, in ways that uh, I never saw coming. Yeah, I've lost relationships for doing God's will. I've lost job promotions for doing God's will. And so how can you tell me it's a life of reward? Well, for example, say if you're in the workplace and you choose to do God's will and to live a life of integrity and character and honesty, and you lose a promotion or you lose a sale before it, yeah, because of it, yes, you may have lost, and yes, it may have cost you, but you can't put a price tag on, on honor. You can't put a price tag on character. You can't put a price tag on values and on integrity. And so God rewards those who uh, walk diligently with him. The Old Testament tells us in Deuteronomy that God honors those who honor him. And so we look this morning in John chapter 2 at a passage of scripture that is one you're probably familiar with, at least to some degree, but I want us to just focus on one simple verse out of this passage. And it's going to hold for us what I believe is the key 
to living a life that honors God brings fulfillment to our lives through the course of this next year and really every year that comes in our lives. So John chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Let me just give a little bit of a backdrop as to what's happening here. In John chapter 2, we find that Jesus, along with his mother, Mary, and his disciples are invited to a wedding celebration, a wedding feast. Now, weddings in in um, Hebrew culture 2,000 years ago <laughs> in Israel were different than they are today. You know, for us today, you know, weddings typically are an event. Now, there's a lot of planning that goes on for four months, six months, eight months, ten months, a year or longer. You know, there's a wedding that, uh, there, there's planning that goes on. But really, the event, the wedding itself is just a half of a day. It's a ceremony, and, uh, and then it's, a, you know, it's a, a celebration afterwards, and then the whole thing is over. The celebration is done. People go home. Well, in, in Israelite culture, 2,000 years ago, at the, the uh, opening of the New Testament, it was much different because wedding feasts could last up to a week, and oftentimes they did. And we see here in this chapter, in chapter 2, that Jesus and his mother Mary and his disciples are invited to this wedding celebration. More than likely, we can understand they were friends of this particular family that were about to join their lives together. They were invited to this wedding celebration. They come, and we can understand as we move through this passage in a moment that Jesus' mother Mary very likely had some responsibility for this wedding celebration as well. And we're going to see that in how she responded whenever a crisis came up. And so Jesus and his disciples and his mother, they find themselves at this wedding celebration. Typically, would have, the, the, the actual event would have started on Wednesday. Uh, for some reason, back in those days, wedding celebrations happened on Wednesdays. It wasn't a, uh, if it was a wedding involving uh, a bride and groom who were not widowed, then Wednesday was the day for the celebration. You say, well, that sounds odd. Who, who would do a wedding on a Wednesday? Well, they would look at us today and say, that sounds crazy. Who would do a wedding on a Saturday? In the fall during football season. But that's another discussion, I suppose. So, uh, so, so it's not really odd. It's just strange for us, but it would have, would have been commonplace for them. And so, so here we are. We, we find in John chapter 2, Jesus, his disciples, his mother, Mary, they're at this wedding celebration, and a crisis comes up. And, and as we read through this passage, you're going to think, this is not a big deal. But I'll share with you here in just a moment why it was a big deal. And so pick up with me here. John chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 1. We're going to read down through, through verse 5. It says, beginning in verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Cana was just somewhat of an insignificant town. It says, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, I've just read that passage of Scripture out of the New American Standard Translation. That's the translation of the Bible that I use. There is another translation called the English Standard Version, which the ESV, which I believe captures verse 5 in a way that helps us to understand it a little better. The ESV simply says, Mary said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Five simple words that hold the key to us living a life that is pleasing to God, fulfilling to ourselves, do whatever he tells you. This was a crisis that unfolded here at this wedding celebration. More than likely, again, planned to be a week long, the centerpiece of this celebration, the wine that was there, had run out. 
Now, the tendency for us today in Christian circles with all of our different denominations is to focus on the fact that there was wine at this wedding. Oh, what does that say? Does that mean Christians can drink or Christians can't drink? That is not the focus of this passage of Scripture, not even what God had in mind when he, penned, when he had these words penned by the Apostle John that we've just read in chapter 2. Now, there is something else that God wants us to see here. What he wants us to see has nothing to do with the wine. It has everything to do with who Jesus is here. And in the midst of this wedding celebration, this tremendous event that would have started, by the way, with the groom and his bridegroom or, or his groomsmen and the wedding party traveling to the bride's house, typically at night, they would have arrived there. There would have been uh, uh, celebration. There would have been speeches. Aren't you glad there weren't speeches at your wedding? Would have gone on and on and on. There would have been speeches, and then after that was all over, they would then proceed over to the to the uh, uh, to the groom's house, and then that's where the wedding feast and the ceremony and the celebration would ultimately begin. And it could go on for, as I said earlier, for about a week. Well, in the midst of that celebration, apparently the wedding ceremony has already occurred. Now they're in the midst of this feast. And what we find here is that the wine has run out. And so Mary, Jesus's mother, who apparently has some responsibility here, she comes to Jesus and she informs him, the Bible tells us there, again in verse three, she just simply says to him, they have no wine. Now this is an interesting thing here. Because this was a big deal. You might think this is not a big deal. This is a big deal. Think for you, you've got family, friends. Say you've got 200 people coming over for a little event at your house, right? Hey, you're thinking, where are we going to fit 200 people? Just follow me on this. And, and you've got them coming over. Say it's a, we'll say it's a New Year's Eve event, right? You've got 200 of your closest family and friends coming. You've cleaned and you've prepared and you've got all this food ready. You've done everything that you can do. And you're playing for a, say, an 11 o'clock to a 1 a.m. event. Two hours, uh, uh, New Year's Eve. It's going to be a great time. All your friends are going to be there. And say, 20 minutes into that, all of your food runs out. How are you going to feel? That's just a little bit of what it was like here. This was a big deal. This broke all kind of no-nos in regards to hospitality. In fact, if you study Hebrew culture at all, you'll find that this was grounds for a lawsuit on the part of the groom's family to run out of wine this way and to have that much of, a, of, a, of an issue of a crisis concerning hospitality. This was a big deal. And so Mary just comes to Jesus and tells us in verse 3, and she says, they have no wine. <laughs> I don't know how she said it. I have a feeling it wasn't that calmly. They have no wine. <laughs> you know I mean? They got no wine! You know, I don't know how she said it, but, but she comes to Jesus and she shares this information. And we got to understand, she knew exactly who Jesus was. He had not performed one miracle. This is going to be his first miracle we have recorded in Scripture. He had more than likely not had any instance that we at least nothing recorded in scripture uh, of having any kind of a major discourse or message having been spoken at this point we got no sermon on the mount no miracles performed but she knew exactly who he was remember last sunday remember this past tuesday you know christmas i mean remember it was mary who was there as she held the baby the shepherds arrive and and they begin telling these stories of of uh, having heard angels sing and more angels sing and angels as far as the eye could see and they're singing they're proclaiming worship towards this little baby that she's holding she remembered that she remembered these shepherds coming mary remembered two years after his birth when when uh, the wise men would come bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh and laying them in his feet would worship him she knew exactly who jesus was she remembered remembered when he would be roughly 12 years old and he would ask questions there in the synagogue that would confound those who were the rabbis amongst them. And everybody would have known him who were close to him, would have known that this was not an ordinary person. Mary knew exactly who Jesus was. 
And so in the midst of a crisis, I'm just saying, she sets a really, really good example for us. When this crisis hits, she brings it right to Jesus. And I don't know what you face today. I don't know what this year holds for you or for me, for your family or my family. But what I know is that whenever we find ourselves in the midst of need, in the midst of crisis, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of difficulty, the best thing we can do is to bring that right to Christ because he knows exactly how to handle it. And so in the midst of this crisis, she brings it to Christ. She says, we have no wine. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? Now, let me just make mention of something here. That sounds like a very harsh reaction. We read this as, as though Jesus said, woman? <laughs> it didn't mean that. Okay? It didn't mean it the way that you've heard it. Uh, in fact, in the, in the Greek language, we find here that, that there's really a term of, of endearment. It's a term of respect, the way he spoke to her. He said, is what, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. What is he looking, looking towards? He's looking at the whole reason he came to earth in the first place. And that was to give his life as a sacrifice on the cross. To rise three days later, securing salvation for all who would turn from their sin, place their faith in him. And so Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. In other words, there can sometimes be a tendency to rush the timeline of God. Mary looks at Jesus We can assume that she's saying they have no wine. Wink, wink. Go ahead. Do what you can do. Come on, you're God. We all know it. Just do something here. Let's push this thing along. Come on. And Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. There'd be three years, three and a half years, some would say, between the introduction of his ministry and the time that he would ultimately give his life on the cross. There would be miracles to perform, not to impress, but to validate the fact that his words were true, that when he said, I and the Father are one, John chapter 10, he was saying that he is God. There'd be messages to preach. There'd be miracles to perform. There'd be healings to take place to show that he is exactly who he claimed to be, God himself. But this was not the time to do it yet. We would find that he would indeed perform a miracle. But it would not be the time for him to announce himself as the Messiah. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, again, and I'll read from the ESV, do whatever he tells you what an amazing picture of the beauty of the Christian life. Five words, and I want to focus on every one of those words today. And it's going to be about the length of a regular message. And so you're not going to be here until one o'clock. But five words I want us to focus on. The first word is the word do. Do whatever he tells you, she says to the servants. The first word is the word do. The Christian life is a life of action, isn't it? There, there is really no place for laziness in the Christian life. If your mentality of the Christian life is, man, now I've come to Christ, I've given my life to Jesus, I've prayed that prayer, you know, I've sur- surrendered my life to Christ, now I'm just going to kind of kick it back a notch, I'm going to relax, I'm going to sort of coast into heaven, you know, I'm not going to go blazing in there, I'm just going to sort of coast on into heaven whenever that comes, then that's the wrong mentality. You see, the Christian life is a life of action. It is not a static life. It is a life that is always moving. It is always fluid. And you say, well, Brooks, there have been times that I've been in transition in my Christian life. I've been between churches, or I've been between jobs, or or I've been in a place where I felt like I was just not accomplishing anything. No, that is still a place of action in your life. Because where you may feel as though nothing is happening, God is constantly at work in your life, constantly at work around you. 
And there is no place for us to be apathetic. There is no place for laziness in the life of the Christian. The Christian life is a life of action. And the way we see that is through obedience. That when God calls us to take steps in our lives, we always respond by actively obeying and following where he leads us. Let me get you to flip over to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 4. I want you to notice something here. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is writing this letter in 1 Timothy to to his, his young son in the faith, really, not his biological son, but Paul had led Timothy to faith in Christ. We read of that in the book of Acts. Timothy would later go into ministry. He would pastor. Paul wrote the book of 1 Timothy to him to help give him instruction and encouragement, admonition. So listen to what it says. 1 Timothy chapter 4. The, the context here is Timothy walking in a way that is wise in the midst of the dangers of this world. Listen to what it says, 1 Timothy 4. Look down in the second part of verse 7. 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. Look at this, the second half of that verse. He says, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Discipline yourself, he says to Timothy. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That word discipline is a Greek word, gymnazo. It's the same word from which we get a number of English words, gymnasium, for example. It was an athletic term, and when Timothy heard Paul use that word, when he saw it written there, Timothy, gumnazo, discipline yourself, he would have immediately placed it in the realm of, of, of athletics. Because in the athletic world, that word meant to train. Not just to discipline yourself, but to train yourself day in and day out. And what Paul was saying to Timothy was, if you're going to live the Christian life the way that it should be lived, then you have to live a life of doing. We don't do for our salvation. We don't work to be saved for our salvation is by God's grace. But once we have a relationship with Christ, listen, our life is geared towards obedience. God wants us to do, to live, to walk with him. And he says to Timothy, Paul does, that this is an, a, 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 an aspect of your Christian life that requires discipline. You have to work at your want with Christ. If there is anything in me that reflects Christ, if there is anything in you that reflects Christ, it came by two things. One, God's grace and putting it there. And number two, you working along with him to see that, that quality built up and, and demonstrated through your life. For example, if you're a person who's patient and you didn't used to be, God gave you that patience, but you had to work with him, didn't you? And he probably put you in positions and in circumstances where it was very easy to be impatient. You had to demonstrate patience, and it took work. God wants us to be obedient in our walks with him. And when we look at doing the will of God, listen, it starts with the word do. Mary leans into those servants at that, that wedding in Cana. When the wine ran out, she says to Jesus, we have no wine, and she leans over to those servants, and she says, do whatever he tells you. And so let me just ask you a quick question. Is your Christian life characterized by action? Or is it characterized more by an attitude of, I'm just going to sit and I'm going to let everything come to me. I'm going to sit, I'm going to wait for God to bless me. I'm going to wait for God to do for me. I'm going to wait for other people to do for me. Or is your Christian life characterized by life of action. 
In other words, when I go to work, I'm on the mission field. There are things I need to do there to put Christ on display. When I go to class and I'm on my campus, I'm on a mission field and I need to do things. I need to live in a way. I need to be proactive and I need to be intentional so that people see Christ through my life. And whenever things don't go, whenever things don't go rightly, whenever they go wrong, things begin to get, you know, slip out of my grasp. I have to respond in a way that is Christ-like, that is proper. Don't just go through my day with no plan, with no intentionality at all, and let life come to me. No, we do the Christian life and His strength and His power. And Mary says to those servants, do. There's a second word in that verse. She says, do whatever He tells you. That word whatever is the... It's the qualifying word to the will of God. Has God ever led you to do something that was easy to do? And whenever you sense that this is what God wanted me to do, man, it, it was, it, you jumped all over it. You know, maybe it was that person you were dating and you'd spent some time together and that, that dating relationship built into you know, just something that was longer and you began to think more long-term down the road. And, and you as a Christian began to pray, oh Lord, is this the person you want for me? Is this the one that, you know, do I need to, uh, I'm at a place now where you would have me to, to ask the question and commit my life to this person. And you prayed about it and uh, you took the right steps and you had a sense of, of leadership in your life that God was saying yes. And you're like, here we go. You know, and then you ask the question, and off you go. It was so easy to do. Most of us have had those kind of things happen in our lives. But then there are places in our lives where God leads us to do things that aren't so easy to do. It may be to take a stand that we know is going to cost us. It may be to take a step of obedience that we know God is leading towards, but we don't necessarily desire it ourselves. And there's a gap between our will and God's will. Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you there'll be times in this in this year there'll be times in your life in my life when an honest examination of God's word honest prayer before God yielding ourselves to him will reveal to us that God desires that we take a step of obedience that's going to be a difficult step and we will have to answer that question Oh God, am I willing to do whatever you call me to do? There are missionaries on the mission field today who left six and seven figure incomes, family, possessions, because God called. And they left everything that was comfortable and everything that was convenient for them to go to a nation, to a country, to a people that had nothing simply because it was the will of God that led them there. They would tell you that they're more fulfilled today than they were when they had everything the world could give. But they had to decide who was Lord of their life and are they willing to do whatever he leads them to do. It's almost like you have a blank check that God gives to you. And on that blank check, you sign the amount. And as you sign, or you sign your signature there, and as you sign the signature, you give it back to God and you say, God, I've already signed this check. Now fill in the amount. And you're willing to do whatever he asks. Stories told of a little rural church out in the country about 60 people went to this church, and a visitor one day walked in, and he found his seat about 15 minutes before the service started. He was on the back row, and nobody was in the building at all. He took his coat off. He laid it down in the pew there beside him. He set his Bible down. He just waited. 
He figured, you know, surely this is a church. I mean, the door was unlocked. The, sir, the sign says they start at 11, so I'm sure there are going to be people show up 10 minutes before the service started. A gentleman walked in, he went up to the piano, and he sat down, and he started playing. And as he started playing, he was playing very softly, and all the person could hear uh, from this person playing the piano was just the simple words, yes, Lord, yes, as he played softly. Over and over, he'd play the same melody, the same tune, and he would just simply say as he played quietly, yes, Lord, yes. And one by one, six minutes before the service, five minutes, four minutes, three minutes before, people are trickling in. They come in, they sit down, they take their coat off, they set their Bible down, and they're on their seat. They're just closing their eyes, and they're just saying as that same man plays, yes, Lord, yes. Before long, 50 or 60 people are there. They're all doing the same thing. And this visitor is completely confused. Until the man stops playing and he gets up and he walks over to the, to the pulpit and he steps to the microphone and he begins to pray and he says, Lord, you've heard our answer. Now tell us what you want us to do. And what a beautiful picture that is of what God desires in the life of the Christian. Unbridled, listen to me, unbridled trust that says, Lord, I know your heart, I trust your heart, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Mary leans in to these servants and she says, do whatever he tells you. There's a third word, the word he. You know, there are are many competing voices, aren't there? There are many competing voices with God's voice in your life. In this world we live in, there are voices that come from friendships, voices that come from the media, voices that come from just about every direction. And those voices, most of them will lead you in a way further from God rather than closer to Him. If we allow this world to dictate how we live our lives, this world will lead us down a path of absolute destruction spiritually, if not in other ways as well. And yet above the fray and above the voices and the messages of this world, there is another voice, and it's the voice of God, figuratively speaking, that speaks into our lives. And we find here in this passage in John chapter 2 that as Mary speaks to to the servant, she says, do whatever he, Jesus, tells you. What does that tell us? It tells us that he has ultimate authority over our lives. We're not people who often deal with authority always very well. When an officer who has authority over you pulls you over, you're probably going to be grumbling about it. He did something wrong rather than you did something wrong, right? Whenever someone in authority over us, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's uh, in some other arena of life, oftentimes we find that when that authority speaks into our lives, we resist it. In fact, we oftentimes, in many cases, even applaud ourselves for our willingness to stand against authority. However, what happens is when we apply that to our relationship with God, we create a grease fire in our lives. It's an absolute train wreck because God does have authority. He is our creator. He's the one who breathed life into us. He's the one who came for us. He's the one who died for us. He's the one who rose for us. And if you're a believer, he's the one who has saved you. He has absolute, total, complete, 100% authority over your life and over my life. And what her statement says to us when she speaks to the servant, she says, do whatever he tells you. It reminds us that it's he, Christ, who has authority over our lives. In fact, look over to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to see something here that Paul writes to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
I'm sure there are some here today, I, I certainly have a tendency to do this in my own life, in my own Christian walk, that are wrestling today with the will of God in your life. You know what God wants from you, however, it's an authority issue, it's a struggle over who's going to have right, who's going to have reign, who's going to have power over your life. Maybe for you, you've been unwilling to do what God wants for you to do in your life. Even though you know clearly what God desires, you've been unwilling to take that step of obedience because of this authority issue. Listen to what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and verse 20. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, verse 20. He says, do you not know that your body, speaking to the Christian, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. Paul could not have been more clear in this. He says, you are not your own. You do not belong to yourself. Verse 20, for you have been bought with a price, and that's a reference to the life of Jesus Christ given for us on the cross. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God, he says, in your body. In the Christian life, it is Jesus himself who calls the shots. It is Christ who has ultimate authority in our lives and where he leaves us to take a step of faith. Listen, we don't have to decide whether or not it makes sense. We don't have to decide whether or not it's doable. We don't have to decide why he's leading us to do a certain thing. All we need to know is what do you want me to do, God? And once he reveals that to us, as we'll see here in just a moment, once he shows us his will for our life, He's the one who has authority to call the shots. We have the responsibility then to follow. And it doesn't matter if you're a 12-year-old who's in grade school or middle school, whether you're a 17- or 18-year-old who is in high school or college, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're 99 years old or 9 years old, if you have a relationship with Christ, the same principle applies. He calls the shots, he leads the way, and we follow his lead. And so as Mary leans over to the ear of these servants in the midst of this crisis, she says, do whatever he, not everybody else around here, do whatever he tells you to do. Which leads us to the fourth word. The word tells. I think I know the question that some of you are asking. So, Brooks, how do we know God's will? How do we hear from God? I mean, am I supposed to just expect some vision and hope it's not indigestion from Mexican food the night before? I mean, I hear people on TV stations, on the radio, talk about visions they've had. I mean, is that the way this works? Uh, Is that how God speaks? Am I supposed to wait for a dream to come? Uh, I mean, am I going to see Jesus at the foot of my bed? I mean, I've heard, you know, I mean, how does all this work? I mean, how do I know God speaks to me? Let me give you four ways primarily that God speaks today. Number one, first and foremost, he speaks through his word. Through his word. What's his word? It's the Bible. The one you hold, probably leather, leather bound, maybe paperback, doesn't matter as long as it's his word. That's how he speaks today. You know, th- th- this is a a percentage off the top of my head, but I would say probably 90% of God's will for your life is captured right here in the pages of his word. Where we often get hung up is that, you know, 10%, 15 20 whatever the percent is, uh, of the gray areas where you know, God doesn't tell us where to work. He doesn't tell us whether or not to move. He doesn't tell us who to marry. He doesn't tell us, you know, uh, uh, where to send the kids to school. He, he doesn't fill in those blanks, and that's kind of where we get hung up. Here's my conviction, and I've walked with the Lord in a relationship for a long time. I had a lot of bumps, a lot of struggles, a lot of stumbles, but I've walked with God for a long time. I came to Christ early on, and thankfully so. 
But here's what I found, is that if we're faithful to just do what he tells us to do that is so clear in his word, that percentage that's the gray areas tends to take care of itself. He gives wisdom for the areas where he hasn't spoken specifically if we're only willing to obey and walk in those things that he has stated clearly in his word. Does that make sense? And so you're you're wondering, so if I'm supposed to do whatever he tells me to do, how does he tell me what his will is? It's right here in this book. And that raises the standard on the time that we spend there. And if we don't spend time studying his word, and it's not so that we can earn a prize, it's not so that we can boastfully claim, hey, I read the whole Bible this year. It's not for that reason. If we can simply read his word, if it takes us 10 years to get through it, that's okay. But if we read it consistently and we study it and we dig into it, and the desire there is just to know him, just to know his heart, to know, to know how he wants to work in our lives. If it's to know that and then to apply it to our lives, listen, we're going to hear from God. And it's not going to be because we saw him at the foot of our bed or heard his voice audibly. It's going to be because he used the word that he wrote for us without error, completely inspired by him to give us the instruction that we need in this life. And then one of the best things that I can say to you, Christian, is that if you don't spend time consistently in God's word, what a, what a, plan, what a, what a resolution to put into place this year to start studying his word consistently, not just Sundays, but consistently. Studying and reading his word, putting yourself in a position. It's why we do Sunday school. It's why we do dive, to allow people to grow in their relationship with God. And you need that time. How does God speak into our lives? Primarily, number one, he speaks through his word. Number two, he speaks through his spirit. You as a believer, as a Christian who turned from your sin, you've invited Jesus Christ to take over your life, to forgive you. At that point, at that moment of, of salvation, the Holy Spirit came to live within you. And he's not going anywhere. He will convict you of sin whenever you do things that aren't, aren't, uh, aren't right. The Holy Spirit is the one who speaks to your heart. He's the one who says, hey, you shouldn't have been doing that. You feel guilty, you've got to confess it to God. Why? Because he wants to keep you out of, the, out, of the, out of the high weeds. He wants to keep you out of the danger areas of life. But it's the same Holy Spirit who speaks words of instruction, direction to your life. And as you pray and as you make decisions, you have the sense of peace in your life. Colossians says it's the peace of Christ that serves as the, as the arbiter, the umpire for us. So that as we face a decision in life and as we pray about it and as we apply these these principles that we're looking at now, we study God's word. And we have to make a choice many times. It's God's peace that covers our heart, that helps us to understand, you know, this is what God wants me to do. Are we fallible? Yes. But will we honestly seek the heart of God and we take a step and it's not the step he wants us to take? Aren't you glad for God's grace? But God speaks to us through his peace, through his spirit. So he speaks through his word. We've got to spend time there. He speaks through his spirit. So we need to be people who pray, who spend time with him. Number three, he speaks through godly counsel. Proverbs says, he who walks with wise will be wise. You need Christians that are solid, that are deeper in their walk than you, that have been Christians longer than you. You need them in your life. I've got some in my life. And you need to bounce things off of them. You need to spend time with them. Because why? That godly counsel is a way that God speaks into your life. And then number four, he speaks through circumstances. I'll just say this about circumstances and we'll move on. Is that we, don't put, we do not want to put all the eggs in the basket of circumstances because the enemy uses circumstances as well. Let me give you an illustration. Say you're, you're, you're in a marriage, you're married, and you're not happy in that marriage. And you're out in, say, the mall one day and you notice a 
an old friend from years ago. Say you're you're a guy, and you know, she comes walking by, and you strike up a conversation. Hey, it's been a long time. Yeah, twenty years, you know. And next thing you know, you know, there's a Facebook friend request. Then she pops up somewhere else, and you see her somewhere else, and you're thinking, you know what? This has got to be God. <laughs> you know, I've been so unhappy, and I know God wants me to be happy. And I've been praying, I've been reading the Bible, and I've been going to church. I've been praying for God to make me happy. I'm really happy when I see her come walking by. Uh, There's got to be God. Those circumstances are just undeniable. No, that's not God. Why? Because God is not going to do anything contrary to his word. And so whenever we begin to look at circumstances, we have to understand that the, that the enemy as well can use circumstances <laughs> to bring temptation and diversion in our lives. So circumstances aren't the end-all, be-all. We don't make all of our decisions based on circumstances. But here's, the way, here's what I found in my Christian life is that many times if I face a decision and I'm seeking God's will and I've sought his word and I've talked to other godly Christians and I've been praying and I have a sense of peace of where God's leading, many times what I've found is that God will use circumstances to be the icing on the cake. It's like the final stamp of approval. This is where I'm leading you, big knucklehead. Now just go do it. And so how does God speak to our lives? He speaks through his word, speaks through his peace, his spirit. He speaks through godly counsel. And he speaks through circumstances. Mary leans over to the ear of those servants that day in the midst of that crisis, and she says five words. Do whatever he tells you. God has a purpose for you. You're not a number to God. You're not 6871334289 to God. You are who he created you to be. He knows your struggles. He knows your weak spots. He knows your blind spots. He knows your falls, your failures, your victories. He knows your strengths. He knows your heart. He knows every hair on your head. He knows your past, your present, your future, and he knows everything that he desires to do, and he loves you more than you could ever even fathom. And the will that God has for you is not a leftover will from somebody who lived 50 years ago. It's not a copycat will of somebody that he, you know, he put a will in there, you know, gave them you know, a sense of direction for their life and it worked, so he's going to clip it out and put it in. No, he has a specific purpose for you and your life and everything that you face, the hardships and the struggles and the trials and the victories and the successes, all of those are for a reason. And as Mary leaned over to the ear of those servants... There was nobody else in that place that could remedy that situation except Jesus, and he chose to remedy it through those.